0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Map Around Show. This is the built-in Colorado show because it's so rad here. <laughs> Can't stop saying that. Anyway, uh, but I digress. Today, I'm connecting you to an amazing uh, founder um, and team really doing incredible things for uh, the human race when it comes to space debris. Um, and uh, his name is... Is Gary, co-founder of CIS Luna. Welcome to the show, Bud. Thanks, Matt.
1: Thanks for having me on here. <laughs> Appreciate
0: it. Cool, Matt. Just lift your camera for me somewhat, just so at your top of your head I can get your pretty face. There you go. See, now everyone's <laughs> with us. Cool, buddy. Um, so um, so thanks for being here. It's uh it's great to have you on, on the second final show of the year. So um, but for our viewers around the world, Gary, who uh, haven't heard of the amazing things that you are doing. Um, as a team, uh, why don't you give us a little bit uh, about your background and give us the elevator pitch to uh, CIS Luna?
1: Sure, sure. Yeah. So uh, so my background is coming from kind of outside the space industry. Um, and, and, you know, that's what we're, we're involved in right now. Um, I, I come from a background of entrepreneurship and finance, uh, sort of an amateur engineer, I guess, if you will, <laughs> uh, a bit of an inventor. Um, but you know, I, I've always had a passion for space, and as I was going through my finance career, doing you know budgeting and and uh, financial analysis for large and medium sized companies, um, I was watching the space industry kind of develop and become much more entrepreneurial and open to you know not just governments and large uh, defense contractors, and I wanted to get in. I've always been fascinated with space. I mean, my earliest memory of space stuff, I I had um, I, I must have been like twelve or so. Made you know taped together pieces of graph paper and and drew out a big lunar base map that I thought I wanted you know help build someday. Um, so yeah, it's always been in my heart. And then I went to the International Space University as my way of getting involved in the space industry. Um and when I went there, I was Director of finance at a space uh, at, at a space, at a a SaaS software company here in Denver, and uh, you know, about two hundred million dollars in, in revenue size company um quit my job there and went to the international space university in cork ireland uh where i met my co-founders and i went there with the intention to find some co-founders who wanted to get on this crazy adventure and go build a space company that was gonna you know push the envelope of humanity going into space and uh that's how we got started
0: cool buddy um
1: so so let's see here. And, so I guess Sysler Industries, I didn't tell you about what, what Sisler Industries does yet, but
0: Yeah, I was gonna well, that's fine. That's fine. So so it's it's pretty hardcore what you got, or at least from my experience. I'm gonna show you some cool videos. By the way, guys, if you are catching just the audio, head on over to YouTube and subscribe because there's some cool stuff we're showing you on, on every episode. So so Gary, what is CIS Luna trying to do here around space debris?
1: Yeah, so really at at its core, um space debris is one of the key pieces of it, but we are trying to build what we see as, you know, the steel mills and the aluminum smelters of the next industrial revolution, which we see happening in space. So it's actually much bigger than just space debris. But what we're creating is a capability for processing metal in space to be used in space um, to help build this industrial economy. If you think back to la- the, last, you know, the last industrial revolution at the beginning of the 20th century, it was, you know, it was people like uh, like Andrew Carnegie that built the steel mills that helped to create that capability um, for uh, sort of underpins all the modern economy today and we think it's going to be just as critical for space as we go out there and move sustainably beyond earth um and what what's great about it is as we were investigating this idea at the at the space university um, i became more aware of of space debris and you know the problem that space debris poses and uh, and and realized that okay we've got all this material out there it's already refined somebody's got to deal with it anyway this could be the first feedstock for these, you know, these steel mills of the future to, uh, to process and utilize. And we really kill two birds with one stone. We able to accelerate the development of this technology, create a source of, of materials for manufacturing companies um, who want to build stuff in space and also build this foundational capability, which we can then use to, to, you know, process lunar material and asteroid material and, you know, all other sources of metals as we move out into the solar system. So,
0: hmm. So um, I was just checking out uh, your, your kind of vision here. Um, so, so when you say processes provide critical metal materials, what are they?
1: I mean, so, so when you think about uh, the value chain for developing resources in space, and I guess I should back up a step. If you're going to move, if you're going to take humanity off beyond Earth, like say to the moon or even further out, and you want to stay there on a permanent basis – you're not bringing the stuff with you from Earth all the time, right? So it's, it's really key to develop this capability of, of using the resources where you find them and be able to, um, whether that's like oxygen and, and you know, water for, for just living or making other things or if it's for, you know, constructing uh, equipment and, and housing and bases and that sort of thing. So the critical metals we're talking about are just basic metals on Earth, things like aluminum you know, iron, steel, um, that kind of stuff that, you know, here is is seems like kind of basic and inexpensive. Um, these things are hard to come by in space. We're bringing everything up with us right now. So we're trying to solve that piece of the puzzle. If you're going to have an industrial economy and you want to take things that are mined from one end of the of the value chain um, and turn them into something that manufacturers can use at the other end, somebody's got to process those mined materials into that intermediate product that the, the process, the uh, manufacturers can use
0: hmm. So um, what's the mark? Well, given everything you've said, what would you say is the market opportunity for this? Because, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of out there, bro. No no pun, well, pun intended.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course, like the, the long range vision is out there, right? It, it's a long ways off. And I mean, this is hundreds of billions of dollars kind of market opportunity when you get into this future state. But of course, that is when that happens is is obviously debatable. Um, it could be in the next decade. It could be, you know, a few decades from now, but it is coming. And and the the key pieces to make this happen, while it might sound like science fiction, <laughs> and it does to a lot of people who aren't like deep in this stuff, um, it's already being built. Like There's companies that are doing in-space uh, manufacturing right now on the space station. There's, there's several companies that have, um, you know, raised a ton of money to build private space stations. Uh, you know, there's companies that are doing in-space transportation, all these pieces of the puzzle we need. There's companies there's a company in Australia that we partner with quite closely that can use metal rods like like this one which we manufacture um, as propellant to as rocket fuel, if you will, not to burn it but to use it in a different way uh, to move things around in space. and so the market opportunity we think is absolutely massive. I mean if you look at the market opportunity for building steel mills it, you know at the turn of the last century, you know it it's huge, right? Um, in the near term to get there is obviously a more, you know, it could be a longer path. We have a, a way of getting there right now that we see ahead of us. Um, we're planning for first commercial oper- operations on the space station in 2025. And then that could grow pretty quickly by the end of the decade to a multi hundred million dollar business already by itself.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys are working with, uh, NASA. You've been heavily featured in the media, um, and, 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 um, um, Walk me through your relationship with NASA because, you know, when I think about SpaceX, for instance, it's like, you know, they outsource their, a lot of their payload delivery into, into orbit to SpaceX yes. just because they do it the best job at it. So sure. what, what, are you, what is your relationship with NASA and what are you doing uh, with them?
1: Yeah, so um, we started our, our relationship with NASA in 2020. They put a right, you know, sort of during the pandemic, they do this every year, but they kind of accelerate the process then. Uh, what's called a SBIR or Small Business Innovation Research um, contract. Sometimes it's a grant, sometimes it's a contract. With NASA, it's a contract. And you you make a proposal to them to, you know, they put out things that they need, a whole variety of things. And that year, um, they happened to put out a call for recycling metal outside of the space station, uh, scavenged from large objects. And it just so happens that we had been talking about this um, when we were trying to get this set up in Luxembourg uh, for at least a couple of years prior to that. And and NASA, you know, had not previously put that much attention on this sort of thing, but but it became a part of this this offering. Um, and we went for it as a U.S. company. Um, any any U.S. owned company can go for these things. And uh, and they gave us the award in 2020 to, you know, build our, to take a con- take our idea from concept to, you know, what we made as our first prototype, which was really exceeding the expectations of NASA. Because of that, we were able to, um, to develop the relationships there and get our phase two. So phase one is $125,000. I think it's a little bit higher now, but that's what it was back then. Um, phase two is $750,000. And that's taking you for two years uh, to develop this technology to something that could actually go up into space. And so that's what we're doing right now. Hmm.
0: So let's talk about well before we get into what you have actually built because I want to again share everyone some cool stuff video wise. Um, how much space debris is there? You know what I mean? Because yeah, like yeah. I hear about like you know uh, I think Elon's launching that global satellite network and they're putting thousands and you know of satellites into space in one payload. It's like ten. It's like thousands. It's like a lot. What well, sounds like a lot, um, and then. The rational part of my mind is like, well, how much stuff are we putting up there versus mm-hmm. bringing it down? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because it's yep. like it's like, like how big is just the space to problem at the moment? Yeah,
1: I think the, the current last count I saw for active satellites was something around 4,000, 4,000 4, or 5,000 satellites in orbit right now. A good chunk of those are the 2,000 satellites that have been launched for the Starlink constellation, which is what you're talking about that SpaceX has put up there. Um, they have plans to go as big as 40,000 satellites in that constellation. I think their current license is for 12,000. So they're still building up that constellation, but it's definitely the most developed so far of all the constellations. There are several other constellations that are planned, uh, but in total there's, there's, you know, there's satellites that are operational. There's old upper stages from rockets. Cause it used to be when you'd launch a rocket, you know, you have the first part gets you up so far, it doesn't make orbit, it falls back to earth. The next part, you know, might get into orbit and that part just used to stay up there. Now we don't do that. Now we take that part back down, and let it burn up in the atmosphere. Um, but, but or in SpaceX's case, we reuse the first stage and the second stage burns up in the atmosphere. But um, and so there's a whole bunch of upper stages up there, which we think are probably one of the easier things to target from a resource perspective. If we're going to recycle them because they're mostly metal. You know, they're not as they're kind of more uniformly shaped and that sort of thing. Um, and then you got a whole bunch of old dead satellites too. So you know you have a whole bunch of different orbits around low Earth orbit, which is where the, where the space station is, you know where Starlink constellation is. And then you have uh, you know less number, but still quite a lot in what's called the the GEO orbit, which is where your sort of direct TV satellite comes from and, and that sort of thing. That's a bit further out. And those satellites, when they're done with their end of, the, end of life, they they you can't bring them back. It's too far to come back. So they just go out a little further in what's called the graveyard orbit. And even in the graveyard orbit they're not perfectly stable there so it, you know there's there's I think I think the last count I saw was something like um 10 million kilograms of material amongst all this you know these old uh, old satellites and active satellites all put together I think that was the last number I saw on that so a good chunk of those we think we can go after you know with our partners we're not going after them by the way I should make that clear we're just building the steel mills to process them. Um, what we're what we're doing is partnering with companies that can go out and get these things and bring them to us.
0: So I never hadn't even heard about a graveyard orbits <laughs> before. So so this is so this is literally an orbit for junk in
1: space. Pretty much, yeah. Huh. When you your your uh, your you know geosynchronous satellites are thirty six thousand kilometers from Earth, when they go to the graveyard orbit, they use a little bit of what fuel is left and it pushes them out to about, you know, 300 kilometers further. So they're not that much further away, you know, relatively speaking. Uh, by comparison, the space station is 400 kilometers or so above the Earth. So, you know, when we're talking about low-Earth orbit and geosynchronous orbit, there's a pretty big difference in distance. But. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Mm-hmm. And what happens when, is it, is it possible or feasible to run out of that orbit orbital space?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it, this is a, a, uh, a concern of many different people in the space industry. There's a lot of, you know, um, international agencies, as well as companies working on trying to solve the space debris problem. Um, there is a kind of a carrying capacity of these orbits. If they get too crowded. Things will start to run into each other, and there's this thing called the Kessler effect that was theorized back in the 70s where if it gets too crowded, you have too many collisions. Collisions cause more collisions, cause more collisions. You have this runaway effect where you have kind of a cloud of debris that makes it really hard to use any of the orbits we need for space. And if that happens, then we're all going to be in a, in a world of hurt because we use space a lot more than people usually realize.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, um, this is why startups like yours are so valuable. So let's talk about your – what have you built? So what exactly have you built? So how do you take, like, these satellites units, mm-hmm. um, you know, whatever the stage is, and re- recycle the damn thing <laughs> in space, <laughs> like, like – interesting challenge
1: (laughs) it is an interesting challenge indeed so the way the way we envision this happening is we have what we're calling the space foundry this is our core technology so what this is is a machine that can melt down metal and process it into different shapes and it uses what's called a continuous casting process which just means that we can as we keep feeding material into it it can keep making longer and longer things which can be useful for certain applications um and then we partner with companies that can host that that foundry on, say, a space station. And, and there's a number of companies that are proposing to have these space stations. Most of them want to have this capability on board. Um, and then we partner with other companies. Like there's one, another one that's a Japanese com- company that also has a head, U.S. headquarters here in Denver called Astroscale. And they make what would be like the the tow trucks of space. So they would send out spacecraft to go grab these things. And the way the process would work is Astroscale would go out, or other companies as well, grab these objects um, with robotic arms, basically, um, You know, move the object back to uh, a platform, and then it would get docked onto that platform or a space station. Um, and then another robot would come and start cutting pieces of that off. And so what I think is going to happen is there's other companies that want to build these sort of large volumes, spherical volumes and other shapes. So what I'd like to see is one of those used to kind of be the garage to take these things apart in. So we stick the, the, you know, the old upper stage inside this large volume, and then another robot comes and starts cutting pieces off of it. And we might, you know, if we want to, if we're going to recycle the whole spacecraft, we're going to want to separate, say, the aluminum from the, from the copper wires and from, you know, the steel rivets and the coatings and so much. We don't want to have all these things hodgepodge together for construction materials. Um, But then once we've done that, we'll we'll, you know, cut strips of it and those strips will get fed into the furnace where they get melted down just like they do, you know, in any sort of metal furnace. Um we make our part. We either make fuel rods to go, you know, fuel the retrieval of more debris or we make something like wire or, you know, tubes or sheet metal that we then sell to other customers who want to make either space stations or other satellites in space.
0: Hmm. Pretty hardcore. Uh, (laughs) yeah like that's definitely not on my window of uh, (laughs) or on my roadmap which I guess is a good point of departure for the question which I have for you uh, which is on your roadmap what is actually on your roadmap um, and what does your technology readiness level look like for NASA
1: yeah so so right now I think what from NASA's point of view out of our phase one we were a TRL three plus, so not quite the TRL four, um, but now, at, now we've flown in a parabolic flight, which so in our phase two, the intention is to get that all the way to the point where with some additional funding that we're gonna be applying for to where we can take it up to the space station and do our first demo. Um, and so, you know, right now we're six months in, we did a parabolic flight just a few weeks ago um, and there we were able to show, you know, how two of these key subsystems that will fit together to make the furnace one day, um, can work in that first try at microgravity. And it worked pretty well. Um so I would say you know, at this point we're, you know, at least at TRL 4 heading into TRL 5 depending on which piece you're talking about. Um then then our roadmap is to do a, a, a full demonstration in 2024 on the space station in the Bishop Airlock which is a privately, you know, owned airlock um, run by Nanoracks on on the space station with our partners at Axiom Space who are putting the first um private module on the space station. And and that leads us, if that works the way we want it to, that leads us directly to that first commercial unit in 2025 on on the Axiom module, hopefully, because that's when they want to have their commercial module up there, um, to do on-demand metal processing, where we would take, in this initial case, we'd take scrap aluminum that's inside the space station already from experiments, that would otherwise you have to pay for them to be sent down. Instead of sending them down, or the scrap part anyway, we would process that and say wire for 3D printing. Axiom has customers in mind for that. We create a nice little economy in space and it grows from there.
0: How do you commercialize something like this? Like, like a, you know, this way out of my wheelhouse. So like, well, that's how, that... I just
1: told you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, is there, no, but put numbers on that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, so, I mean, if you, you know, you'll put some numbers on it when we talk about this first opportunity. Um, you know, there is a certain amount of mass that, that is sent back down. Because of supply constraints for sending things back down from from the space station to Earth, um, and I guess maybe back up one step there, when when somebody sends an experiment up to the space station, it has a certain amount of material on it that's necessary to survive launching it there, because that's a very violent you know experience, right? Not all of that is necessarily needed to bring back for science reasons, so we take some of that off. Um, what we've estimated is with just one to 2% of that mass that would otherwise be sent back down, converted into materials that we can then recycle, we can already generate, you know, one to $2 million in revenues. Now, this is just a starting point for a space thing, but it's a beachhead. And then as we grow this opportunity, when when customers start to realize that they can, instead of sending things down that they don't need, um, Recycle it on station for less money. They'll start designing their payloads to have more of it recyclable. They start designing for that capability, and then we expand to multiple space stations in low Earth orbit, which you know we think, depending on how things go, there could easily be five by the end of the decade. Um, this grows, you know, as you do some of the numbers there. Uh, it grows to a hundred million dollar business, you know, just from that part of the of the opportunity set.
0: Mm. Yeah, and then you can challenge the Klingons for interstellar domination. Right? <laughs> I
1: mean, I are talking to a guy uh, in, in the government recently, and he's like, Yeah, you guys are basically building the technology to build the Death Star. It's like, okay, <laughs> that's not the intention. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, the idea is to make large scale things, though. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, exactly. Have you watched, just side, side notes, have you watched uh, that Death Star canteen clip? No, I don't uh, know. I have to look at that. The, Eddie, Eddie Izzard? Uh, The Death Star Canteen, he's a comedian. Oh, no, I don't think so. I was like, oh, there must have been a Death Star Canteen. And then he does this whole thing. It's the funniest thing for everyone. (laughs) Just go take a look. I got it up on screen for everyone. It's on YouTube. Just search the Death Star Canteen. It'll put a smile on your face for sure. (laughs) Um, Yeah, definitely. So, so Gary, how do you raise money for something like with what you're doing? You know, uh, I'm curious to get what your experience has been.
1: Yeah, I mean, so, so far we have raised a pre-seed round um, that was $665,000, and then we got funding from NASA, um, and then we got funding from the state of Colorado as well. Um, so, you know, altogether, it's $1.84 million that we've got, you know, lined up from private investors and, you know, government sources to start with. Um, and as we've been approaching the market, uh, you know, for subsequent opportunities, um, it's challenging because you have this long range vision, right? So I think part of it is, is you know, in the beginning, it was angel investors that came in, friends and family and also more professional angel investors. But to get the VCs, you have to find funds that are sort of aligned with this deep tech vision that can see the long range view. And um, we have some investors who are potentially lined up, you know, who, who might want to jump in on this um, as the round comes together. But really, the ones that are interested so far, they already have a vision for space. They see this future industrialization happening already, and they're willing to tolerate the uh, uncertainty around the market timing for this sort of thing. It's not going to be ideally suited for investors that want to turn something over in five years, you know, if they want to get that quick ROI, because it's just not that kind of investment. This is more akin to like biotech or You know, developing a mine that's out out in the wilderness somewhere because you know the resources are so valuable, Um, and it's you know you got to be comfortable with that kind of early stage risk. Mm.
0: Have you thought about? I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, have you thought about approaching Elon?
1: (laughs) We've thought about it in general. um, We've not yet is the answer there because you know SpaceX tends to be pretty vertically integrated. Um, our our whole approach to this this market is much more broad based, collaborative, um, much more like what we you know what you see in the economy on the ground. You know is what we envision happening in space, where people aren't you know you don't have these monopolies that are vertically integrated across the whole thing. You have um, people that specialize in platforms. You have people that specialize in transportation. You have people that specialize in foundries. Like this is, I think, how it's going to unfold ultimately as as the economy develops, but. Um, not, we haven't really approached SpaceX yet about this. We do see them as a potential customer someday to you know, reprocess that constellation of satellites instead of burning it up in the atmosphere, which is what the current plan is. Um, and, and there's a number of other companies like that out there.
0: So on the timing point that you made, are you early or like, what, why does the timing? Cause if you talk to me about space debris, it's like timings now,
1: you know? Oh yeah. Space debris timing is now. Um, the the part that's I mean we who knows if we're early or not right but we are on the leading edge of this thing, and and the edge that we're on the leading the part that we're on the leading edge of is the industrialization of space. What they call you know what in, in, the White House just released a policy around this It's called the ISAM strategy, which is, stands for in space uh, in space servicing assembly and manufacturing. So this is what they're thinking of as you know this is how we want to do missions in the future. We don't want to have to launch everything at once, have it live for twenty years. You, know, you can be much more nimble if you if you know you can repair things or you can build things or you can change it as you as you want to go. And if you want to build really big things, you have to build it in space. Um, and if we want to build bases on the moon, we're going to have to build a lot of that stuff there. I mean, not in the beginning, but we will eventually. Um, and so that part of it is definitely early, but it's getting a lot of recognition from the government as a high priority, both on the civil side and in the government side. We have geopolitical rivalries that, you know, China has articulated their intention to go to the moon and develop what they think of as a $10 trillion cislunar economy by 2040. I think it's 2040. Um, and so, you know, we're right where we need to be. If you want to be competitive in this future, we have to be developing the technology now. And so this is the time to develop this metal processing capability. The part that's tricky is when we talk to investors, we think about the payoff. You know, when are, when are the commercial customers going to be there to, to take advantage of these materials we're making? It's not so much about the debris, like getting the debris and processing it, that part of it's kind of easy to conceptualize. But what we're trying to do is take something that is otherwise like a super fun cleanup operation, you know, cleaning up a, a trash site and turn it into a, um, you know, a mine, basically. So it's economically self-sustaining where we will go get it because it's valuable it's only valuable if you can transform it into something people can use. Mm-hmm. That's where we come in. But the people, the people who are going to use it, is the big unknown timing piece of the puzzle. You know, if that's all going to play out the way we think it will. Mm-hmm. So the way we deal with it is we have a, a, a stepwise way of getting there. If you think about the whole value chain, there's a lot of dependencies and a lot of different companies, and that creates other uncertainties. But if we're only dependent on one at a time, and they can come in as they come in, and we can find places to market our technology as we go then it works out okay it just doesn't work for all investors
0: (laughs) yeah well it's funny because i i've been kind of thinking about certain types of startups like yours for instance um and how there's a doctrine where to fund your startup you must go to the private investor market and and yeah okay cool but like you said getting a, an investor to go yeah cool for you specifically you with what you're doing it may not be for everyone and for it's probably not for most people you know for most investors oh yeah it's not for most investors no no so what's interesting and my point is um, is gary is that i'm finding that a lot of startups are actually using strategic partners to fund their businesses so going to nasa and saying hey you come in for the long term and you know Will work with you, or SpaceX, or another aerospace or space economy focused partner um because they're in the space. They don't need convincing. They're already doing what they're doing, and you can accelerate and help them save costs, make money, whatever the case might be. so have you have you explored the strategic partnership investment strategy, and what have you learned if you have pursued it?
1: Yeah. So we are exploring that. um, And there are a number of, you know, strategic uh, corporate venture capital arms that are out there that we think could be a really good fit for this. And we're talking to many of them that would be already, um, you know, ongoing talks. Right. One thing I can say is that we have we have signed an MOU with Sierra Space. Um, Sierra Space is uh, a space company, space focused company. They build a space plane. They build a space station. They partner with Blue Origin to build the orbital reef. Um, they raised 1.4 billion dollars in a Series A um, to to do this, you know, spin out from what was Sierra Nevada Corp um, for just space stuff. And you know, they have a fund, and we're starting to talk to those guys as well. But um, but the MOU is around. They want to have our technology on board their space station, and so they're going to help us develop the subsystems and test them in orbit and give us opportunities to do that, and also flesh out the market side of how it would be used as we go forward. I think, I think that that's a, you know, the strategic capital is definitely a key piece of our strategy. Um, there's also other angles too, which is not just space companies. But you know eventually, some of the industrial companies on Earth who are doing metal processing are going to want to get into that market because it's going to be bigger than the Earth market eventually. And they're not doing it now because it's too far out in the future. It's not really on their radar. Um, but they might be great, you know, candidates for strategic partnerships as well, like an Alcoa or U.S. Steel or, you know, um, any of these other large you know, uh, metal manufacturers around the world could be good partners for this. So they can get their foot in the door, you know, through us and and start to develop that possibility.
0: You should check out uh, Founders Fund. Um, it's run by uh, Peter Thiel. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Um, but, you know, he's uh, obviously sold his shares in Facebook and created the Founders Fund and in there there's a I highly recommend everyone to read the manifesto uh, because he breaks down like the, the problem with venture capital um as as he sees it. Bring I've got it up on screen for everyone. See? You gotta to go to the YouTube channel, people. <laughs> um and but he makes some good points around like, you know, what happened to venture capital. You know, if you have people solving like yourselves, solving hard science problems, like the, the traditional venture capital um, you know, approach to investing, uh, according to his point of view anyway, is is broken and Mm -hmm. hence hence why that's the premise for the founders fund so and then he breaks down like aerospace biotechnology ai energy internet iot essentially and so forth and in the aerospace um uh, sector um uh, he talks about like the barriers to innovation in that space but from a venture capital perspective aerospace is is huge like the upsides are are enormous they're enormous um and so yeah so check out uh, founders fun guys if you want a perspective on venture capital as a startup founder um so gary want to have a bit of fun with you so obviously what you're doing is a hard thing and um and you know this you this isn't your first startup um you have also had a startup that didn't survive but you're obviously taking lessons from that failure and, and kind of applying them to to this venture what was that startup that 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 died and what did you learn from it
1: yeah so that was uh, a startup i founded right out of college in my senior year in at, at university of colorado in boulder um it was called night riders and what we did is we drove people home in their own cars when they had too much to drink so we were like a designated driver service Uh, But this was 2001. So this is well before smartphones. This is before Uber or any of that stuff was even possible. Um, And we were doing it very much the traditional sort of dispatch method. But the unique thing about this company, this startup that I think sticks in people's heads is is the motorcycles we use to go out to the customer. So we had these mini motorcycles. And we would ride them to the customer by ourselves. Um, When we get to the customer, we'd take the motorcycle apart. It fit into four different bags. And we'd stick it in the trunk of the car. Then we'd drive the person home. They'd have their car at home at you know when they woke up in the morning, wouldn't have to go back downtown to get it. Um, they got home safely, and we would just take that that we put the bike back together and ride off to the next customer. That was the basic idea. Um, <laughs> many, many lessons learned from that. I was young, had nothing to lose, like literally nothing to lose. My credit was already terrible, so I didn't, you know I, I really had nothing to lose <laughs> um, and except some time, you know, which was fine. Um, And we went for it. We raised a little bit of, uh, you know, angel money as we started to build the idea. up. But it was really scrappy, um, you know, organic growth, uh, building it up and um, never quite got to a profitable position. But, you know, after running it for four years, um, we were able to get to a point where we had 40 odd employees on the really big nights like, you know, St. Patrick's Day or New Year's Eve, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, yeah, we got a lot of people home. The real big challenge on that one was that your demand cycle was like this, you know, because you had this real big spike right at the end of bar clothes from like I don't know, eleven to 2 thirty in the morning and uh, and not so much anywhere else. And the way we had set it up because we wanted to control how people dressed and when what they did and when they came to work and all that is they were all employees. So people don't want to work you know two hour shifts, generally speaking. they had we would employ them for longer. So it's a, a mismatch on revenues, you know capacity and demand. Um, and we tried lots of different strategies for you know expanding the demand cycle for this and sort of matching that up a bit better, doing things during the day and um all kinds of things. But at the end of the day, um despite a lot of support from from uh, you know uh, like the local, um, you know, Coors Brewing Company, for example, sponsored us, and and all the bars and everybody was very happy to support us. Um, you know, media loved having us on for any drinking holiday because we were you know helping to solve that problem. Um, it just was too difficult of a business to do. And I think if it had gone long enough, like I wouldn't go back into it now, even if I you know knew what I know now, because sooner or later, sending drivers out in, at night on motorcycles to ride around with a bunch of drunk people. Um, was going to result in some kind of terrible accident. So I was like, you know, that never happened, fortunately. But um, but it was it was quite an adventure. Um, I, I tied up my entire identity into that company. And so one of the big lessons out of that one was, you know, how to not do that. Because it, there was no plan B. It was just, we're going to do this, and it's going to win, and there's just no other alternatives. And mm-hmm. we put everything we had into it, and when it finally did fall apart, and it was like, you know, I mean, it was it fell apart in the way that because there was no plan B, we didn't stop until people started to turn things off on us, like turn the lights off and lock the padlock on the you know warehouse. Um, and then it was over. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, there was a bit of an emotional struggle to try to get past that and figure out, like, OK, now what am I going to do? You know, um, how do I separate my identity from that failure and, and move on to the next thing? And so, it, you know, took some time, like going to the corporate world and sort of rebuilding my, my credit and my, you know, my um, money resources and and career and confidence uh, to go back out there and and do it all over again. But it has always been in my blood, though, and that was my first. Yeah, you know,
0: <laughs> but it's a it's a it's a very powerful uh, story and lesson yeah. because I, I had that exact same issue, the exact <laughs> the exact same. So so. I've spoken about like, I've you know, founded 14 startups, 20, mm-hmm. 25 years, had a couple of exits, massive failure, kind of like what you had. Um, and <clears throat> I, I sold my first company, it was a record label. I was 26 and I thought I could walk on water. I was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then uh, my second business was about, um, it was about personal development, you know, so how do you achieve things in your life, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and the issue I had was, that business failed and <laughs> the universe is going to fix a whole bunch of my ego for me. Um, but, the, but my, but to your point, my, my identity was wrapped up in that business. Oh my fuck. Can I just, can I just tell you when you say that you didn't even, you just the surface. Like I think that it's, and you know, I find it is because you were young and I was young. You know, and I, and I, and I think about those days and I wonder like if I just had a, I just had someone to go, Hey, Matt, it's okay, bro.
1: Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Like, like it's okay. Somebody you would believe too, because it can't just be anybody telling you. People told me that, you know, but yeah,
0: yeah. But it's like, like, like a dad or a mentor or older brother or another, I don't give a fuck. I didn't have that guy. I didn't have that girl. I didn't have that person to go, yo, Matt, this is the reality, bro. Like this is how it goes, dude. And by the way, you're gonna have another right. nine fail on you, so get used to it. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Get comfortable with it, right? And, and but the thing is, you like you're like, oh shit, it failed. So I'm a failure. Yeah, right. You know, and and there's a big. So I got another story to share. So my mentor, uh, he owns hundreds of businesses, um, and like stupid stupid money. And uh, he basically his first business was backed by an investor. It was like a it was like a bagel shop. Uh, new york bagel or whatever and and basically everyone was like dude it's gonna die it's not gonna work it's done and he was like he was like you ah it's gonna work it's gonna work like there's no plan b we're gonna we're gonna make this work or it's not gonna work you know every and then so it died and 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 so he had coffee with his investor and he was sat down in front of him he says listen mate like i know i'm young uh but uh if i if it's the last thing i do i'll i'll pay you back every cent and he got up from the table and he left um and the investor investor left or you're no 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 like my mentor um and uh and the investor like slammed his hand on the table and he said sit down (laughs) you know and it's like and he goes so did you fail or did the business fail and he said cool the business failed he says good yeah exactly he says did i back you or did i back the business he goes no you back me he says cool so you haven't failed He said, if you, if you walk out of here and you leave, then you failed. But if you recognize that when a business dies, it's not you, it's not you, you, like your identity is not that like businesses die, bro. Like you start another one the next day and rebuild your credit, whatever. That's just the consequence of it, but it's not you. And fuck, I wish I had someone who just told me that dude, like, you know, Hey man, it's not you. It's just the business.
1: Yep. Yep. Just to try to like, there's such a pile of shame you can layer on yourself. If you you marry the the identity and the business together like that, it's uh it's it's a tricky thing to get out of for sure. Mm-hmm. but I mean, I, I, luckily one thing that is great um the the two guys that I founded that company with, we were really good friends going into it. Um, one of them did have good credit going in, and so he was the one who got like all these credit cards and loans and things for us to be able to actually pull off some of this bootstrapping. Um, and afterwards, his credit wasn't so great anymore. <laughs> but you know what? We um, we are all still really excellent friends to this day because all of us knew that we we all went in it honestly. We you know we we poured our heart and soul into it. No one took advantage of anyone. Um, and you know it was like it was hard coming out, but but uh, in the end, we did the best we could, <laughs> honestly. And and uh, none of the investors held it against us either. Even though I felt like shame around it. Uh, in fact, it was really funny. We me and we had all kind of disappeared after it failed. Didn't even go to Boulder. Like I lived in Denver. I I didn't go up there, even though I had friends there. I felt like I didn't want to see anyone, you know. And uh, one time another investor, uh, one of our biggest investors, he had met with one of the co-founders, not me. He's like, Hey, Carl, you can tell your you can tell Brad and Gary, it's okay to come out now. Like the the coast is clear you know They don't have to hide out in the woods or whatever they're doing you know so yeah um you know and it was never a problem really but like i just didn't know how to handle it i didn't know what to do you know yeah and that's the,
0: that's also the the i suppose the one of the reasons why i do the show because i hope that someday someone's listening to this and they go oh shit and then they remember that yeah you know because then they won't take which is what I did. It took me I mean it's twenty six, so it took me like eight years or something like that. It was a long time to get over that.
1: Yeah, me too. Back to back on the horse took a long time. It's you ridiculous
0: Because like now nah, it's like cool, one dies, I'm like literally starting another one. You know what I mean? Like sure. at the next day, sort of thing. because um, 'cause I've recognized that it's not me, it's just a business. Business die. Move on, you know? Yeah. Take take yeah. the lesson. Um, but um cool. So um, I want to ask you this. If I gave you the keys to the Matt Brown show, Time Machine, and you could go back to yourself on day one of this business, CIS Luna, what advice would you give yourself about building this company?
1: Hmm. I mean, one thing that is interesting, uh I think sticking with the original vision and, and figuring out how to, pursue that. I mean I probably would have moved on from from Luxembourg faster. Nothing against those guys. They're great. But recognizing once they once I realized what what their needs were that we needed to be you know somewhere like the United States where we could tap into larger resources of like a NASA. But also this winding path that we went down. We went through a couple we went through an accelerator program at Creative Destruction Lab, which was also a great experience, but um we got various different kinds of advice and because we weren't sure how we were going to get past this crux moment of funding the company, um, you know, we went down some windy paths that, that, oddly enough, even though it has evolved, has has turned out to be the same basic concept that we started with in, in the first place. And having that like, it, and this has happened over and over again. Actually, we we went through even through Seraphim Space Camp um, recently. You, know, you go through the process, and in the middle of it, I get all this competing advice and you want to take it all in. And I had a really great meeting with uh, Rafferty Jackson, who's part of that program and lots of other things. And she brought me back to this big vision idea. And I realized that's where we should have been from the very beginning because that's where the passion comes through. Like when we go back to that true, you know, core reason for doing it, which is the only thing that keeps you going through the hard stuff anyway. Um, it it helped to tell the story much more, you know, convincingly than trying to like fit into some formula. So that, I think that that's probably one of the uh, one of the big things. The other thing I would do to tell myself differently. This is other big piece is build stuff sooner. You know, when we started actually building hardware, everything changed. I mean, and, and bringing Joe on our our CTO um, in 2020 sort of allowed us to start building hardware because he was here in Colorado. I was in Colorado. Um, and man, NASA is so much more willing to fund you if you show them hardware, like there's a million slide decks out there pushing some grand idea in space or, or any other deep tech thing, you know, uh, lots of cool ideas, but not nearly as many who actually execute and build something. Even if it's just like crappy prototype, just start building and iterating. That's the other thing I would do.
0: It's mm, a very good point. Gary, why do you do what you do?
1: Yeah, so for me, I I I had heard years ago um, this idea that I I, I credit to the, one of the Google founders. I think it's where I heard it, but this idea of like making a dent in the universe and trying to do something that, you know, affects lots of people or that can actually make an impact. And so that, that I've always wanted to be able to make an impact. Um, and so when I think about what we're doing, why we're doing this one, because there's lots of things you make an impact on. Um to me, the, the future optimistic, you know, uh, path for humanity is really only available if we go out into space, we take advantage of the resources that are out there, and and open up all of that capability for you know humanity to expand out beyond Earth. The alternative to me is more of a constrained future where we have to you know find ways to to you know manage the resources that we have and not overuse the carrying capacity of of Earth. Um, but I want to have an optimistic future. I want to be able to solve these grand challenges, you know, not me personally, but I want humanity to be able to solve these grand challenges. And my personal belief is that that can only happen if we go out and utilize the the opportunities that are out in space. And, and I want that for my daughter. I want that for myself and I want that for everyone else. So that's, that's really what drives me forward to do this.
0: Yeah. I, uh, when I, when I talk about space startups, something about them you know it's, it's like the, it's the, the next level <laughs> the next level stuff. of humanity man that's yeah it. dude so I'm on your page man but listen um, it's been a real privilege chatting to you dude um, and uh, I think what you guys are doing is really really hard and uh, like that's what makes it valuable and I hope I believe that your timing is right um, and yeah. I have no doubt that uh, you know you're going to do great things so um, yeah thanks for being on the show yeah
1: appreciate the conversation a lot of fun anytime thanks, thanks everyone
0: yeah Ciao bye